Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we embrace the glories of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories including odometer fraud, Renault suspends operation in its plant in Moscow, and Audi launches its hot S3 and its Karma A3 sedans and sportsbacks. In our feature story, we reflect on new car launches from Audi and Mazda, and in quirky news, Brian and I discuss the new three-wheeled Morgan. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. But now let's get this program going. First, the news. The New South Wales government, through their police department, issued a press release saying that with the boom in second-hand car sales due to supply difficulties with new cars, there has been a fourfold increase in fines issued for odometer fraud. The numbers are not big. They have risen from 22 to 76 in a year, which by our calculations is nearer to a threefold increase rather than the fourfold jump as claimed, but any fraud is a bad thing. Modern digital odometer systems are very hard, if not impossible, to tamper with. It is more likely that a fraud could be committed when a system is replaced. Car companies typically have very strong protocols when issuing a replacement part. Kia, for example, will not send out a new part unless you submit documentation on the existing odometer reading and then they code in your existing kilometre reading before they send it out. Any registered sales organisation, such as a dealer or general car yard, is under close scrutiny. Private sales are harder to police, and a longer-term trend has been the increasing dominance of private sales because of the ease of advertising through services such as eBay, Gumtree, or even specific motoring sites. Now, there is nothing wrong with this as a process, but it is more difficult to try and identify if a seller is being fraudulent. On the other hand, many people, particularly adventurers, including grey nomads, are very proud of the distance they have travelled. If you are looking to buy a second-hand car, the fair trading department in each state should have a detailed checklist of what you should do to minimise the chance of being cheated. The Renault Group has suspended its activities in its manufacturing plant in Moscow. In regard to its two-thirds stake in Avtovaz, the Renault Group is assessing the available options. Avtovaz makes Lada and Dacia vehicles and has about 30% of the Russian market. They sold 350,000 vehicles in 2021, making profits before tax of the equivalent of 273 million Australian dollars for Renault or about 12% of its earnings that year, but it has been reported that the Russian activities accounted for half of Renault's profit in 2021 after the company made losses in the previous two years. Renault has 45,000 employees in Russia. They have revised their 2022 financial outlook, lowering the expected operating margin from 4% to around 3% and lowering its anticipated free cash flow. Renault, which is majority owned by the French government, as well as some other French businesses, were heavily criticised by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and members of his government for not decisively seizing 
for not decisively ceasing operations and not acting sooner. Audi is hoping to reinvigorate its sales in general and its A3 passenger car sales in particular with the release of new models. The A3 range includes the hot hero version, the S3. The new S3, which comes with two body shapes, a sedan and a sportsback, both have the same powertrain. With some features that are now standard rather than being part of option packs and prices starting at $70,700 plus on roads, Audi is pitching at premium features and more performance with less emphasis on optional extras. The A3, including the S3, is classified in Australia as a small car, along with the Mercedes A and B class, the BMW 1 and 2 series, and the Mini Clubman. The S3 has a 2-litre, 4-cylinder, turbocharged petrol engine, producing 228 kilowatts of power, up 15 kilowatts, and 400 newton metres of torque, up 20 newton metres of torque, from its 2019 predecessor, and brings the new S3 up to speed with equivalent performance of that in Europe. The four-cylinder petrol engine delivers maximum torque across a broad range of revs, while the rated power output comes at the high end of 5,500 RPM, remaining constant to 6,500. It accelerates from 0 to 100 kilometres an hour in 4.8 seconds. Both models have a seven-speed S-Tronic dual-clutch transmission and all-wheel drive. While Audi first showed its S3 sedan and sportsback, they also have less energetic siblings in the A3. There is a choice of two engines, a detuned 2-litre called the 40 TFSI, and with the smallest engine, the 35 TFSI, that has a 1.5-litre turbocharged four-cylinder with a mild hybrid electronic technology running on a 48-volt system. With 110 kilowatts, the 35 has less than half the power of the S3 and nearly 40% less torque of 250 newton metres. Mild hybrids are hardly noticeable and seem like a lot of effort for little result, but it is to its credit that while the S3 gets 7.4 litres per 100 kilometre fuel consumption, the 35 gets 5 litres per 100 kilometres. As part of this, under minimal power, it seamlessly shifts down into two-cylinder mode to enhance its fuel consumption and tells you so on the dashboard. Not surprising, it was a much more sedate car to drive, but it still handles very well. But you are less engaged with the vehicle. The A3 felt a bit like driving by numbers compared to the drive-by-feel, as is the case with the S3. With little exhaust noise, you are much less conscious of the gear you're in, and in fairness, you lift that all up to the vehicle. Using the paddles did not produce the perceptive and precise response that made the S3 such a driver's car. Nonetheless, it is very well suited to calm, prestige driving. The 35 is priced at $46,900. And that has been the news. Well, there's been a couple of launches in the last couple of weeks. Alan Zervis, our good friend from Gay Carboys, has been on one for a Mazda. He joins us on the line to talk about it. Gay, Alan. How are you, David? Very well. What did you test? 
It's a, the new Mazda CX-5, which is just the old Mazda CX-5 with different head and tail lights. <laughs> Perhaps not as uh, adventurous or as huge change as some might think. Well, it was released in 2018. It's uh, This launch was really to celebrate the decade of Mazda CX-5 and the fact that, you know, we've had two generations of it now over that time. And uh, it has continuously been one of Mazda's best sellers. Last year, it was the best seller by a long shot. This year, it's also so far the best seller. They really don't have to fiddle too much with it, despite the fact that it's only got a six-speed automatic. It's an SUV, a medium size. It fits in the under 60,000K category. It is the second in that category behind the Toyota RAV4, though the RAV4 is well out in front. It has nearly a quarter of all sales of that segment. And the Mazda last year had about 16.5%. This year, difficulty with supply makes it pretty hard to recognise any trends. What does it sell for? It's uh, up to around $52,000, I think it was, starting in the 30s. There's quite a big price range, but there's also a fairly dizzying range of engines. And there's one transmission, but there's uh, three engines or four engines, I think, and you know many different models, Max and Max Sport and Akira and GP and SP and all of this sort of stuff. Uh, but by far, the best is that same engine that's in the Mazda 6, which is the uh, 2.5 turbo. The reason RAV4 appears to be doing very well is that they do very well with hybrids. Over 60%, I think, of the RAV4s being sold are hybrids, and it's a good hybrid. Does Mazda have one? No, not in the um, CX-5. Perhaps that's an area which they might get to in the future? Although we're fairly late to the diesel party as well, you might remember, the experimentation with um, electrification went really into uh, the MX-30, which uh, no one seems to like. They worked very hard on trying to improve the traditional internal combustion engine, didn't they? They did. Well, they call it their Sky Active. So everything with Mazda's Sky Active, the chassis Sky Active and the transmission and the engines and all of that sort of stuff. But look, what they really need is a hybrid. And that's all there is to it. They need a proper hybrid with decent range, plug in preferably, and they might stand a ghost of a hope because in fact, CX-5 is nicer to drive than a RAV4. They are a very comfortable car. They're a very competent car. Very competent. It's a completely different car, of course, to RAV4 in all ways. It's it's vastly different looking. It's a much smoother, more elegant car. The ride is much, much better. It handles more like a more like a family hatch, though it's not quite there, of course, because it's taller. I had a go of the Audi S3, which is much more performance-oriented. That is really trying to push into the prestige market as well. The S3, of course, is a sedan. Well, they have a sedan and a, oh, no, I can't call it a hatchback. Alan, I got my knuckles wrapped for calling it a hatchback. Oh, really? What is it? A sportback? A sportback. Yeah. A sportback, of course. Uh, What people see most of the time, I know people buy a car based on what it looks like on the outside, but what they see all the time is what's inside. What about the safety systems? Have they been updated as well? I suppose it's typical VW stuff, is it? Well, you know, Alan, you'll be pleased to know that it's got, whether it's a safety system or not, but it's got adaptive cruise control. 
You remember that Audis for a while they made that an optional extra, which on a prestige car years ago we drove the Jaguar XJ and it was a two hundred thousand dollar car and that was an optional extra. I I think those things ought to really be standards. And which is one of our biggest criticisms over the last decade is the incredibly expensive option packages. I know they say it gives you the option to tailor your car to your choice and purse. But a lot of those things that you can get in a, a thirty thousand dollar Kia are in packages for something that's you know costing seventy or eighty thousand. There is a premium plus package which includes a head up display. Driving the car, lovely car to drive, beautiful. But I'd have to say I would like a head up display, confirm which gear you're in, and things like that. I can't believe that's not standard, though, David. That's appalling. Now you said it was nice to drive. Ah, oh, lovely. Absolute precision performance. Sounded good. You knew which gear you're in by the sound of it. Snapped into gear as you dived into a corner. Not necessarily breaking the law of Tasmania, of course. 25k corners on 100 kilometres an hour roads or what have you, or 80k's. It was incredibly enjoyable without necessarily and without being rough. Some of those roads in Tasmania are terribly, terribly rough. You know, some of the Targa course uh, through the roads that we normally drive on in Tasmania are beautiful corners, but it doesn't look like they've maintained the road since 1920. It's not the road to try and even depend in any way on lane keep assist. It won't be picking up the inside lines, edge lines, even if they're there. In some cases, they're not, but... uh, you know, on tight corners and that, it's just not going to pick it up. And it's not something that you would want to drive by. You certainly want to turn that off. It was still an enjoyable drive, I assume. Tasmania is a lovely place to drive around. Lovely places to visit. Where did you go for the Mazda? Ah, South Australia. You'll be jealous. We had glasses of wine in the Barossa. Ah, it's a lovely area, full of history, isn't it? Full of history, of course, a lot of Germans uh, brought their winemaking skills out, uh, you know, in the 1800s, which is funnily enough, where we stayed was a, a, a working cattle station that the house was called Kingsford, but probably known to Australian viewers as Digger's Rest from McLeod's Daughters. That was a show a few years ago where a farmer had daughters rather than sons. Yes, yeah, and it was a beautiful sandstone house. It's had many owners. There's not much left of the history of it inside, most of it that was, uh, I imagine, stripped out during its uh, television era. Nonetheless, it's been added to now by the current family that own it. I think they're in steel or some such manufacturing of some kind, but they've made a a resort out of it, basically. There's a, a swimming pool and a underground bowling alley, this German kind of bowling Two lanes, absolutely brilliant. Massive wine cellar, one of the best collections in the country. Including a table there, wasn't there? Well, the table is in that wine room, and the wine room is adjacent to the original cellar for the original house. But the table looked to be about uh, 25 metres long. (laughs) If you could fill it with water, you could certainly do laps. (laughs) It was magnificent. And the thing is, look, it does... The old house feels old, especially from the outside, still has all the modern hotel electronic keys and so forth, but the electronic keys were bamboo, which I thought was rather nice. 
you know, you and I go on hotel trips and we lose our keys all the time. You wouldn't want to lose one of these. I'd feel quite bereft. Where is it? Is it far out of Adelaide? No, it's only about uh, 50, 55 minutes from Adelaide Airport. Sounds like a lovely idea and a, a good place for a holiday. Alan, always lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. And that's Alan Service from GayCowboys.com. You're listening to Overdrive. A nice bit of feedback to one of our videos. A little while ago, we filmed our Melbourne correspondent, Chris, talking about his restoration of his Mark I Jaguar. We included pictures of his daughter's wedding where she had chosen the Mark I as a wedding car from several old Jag options. In the comments section, JagVet1 said, quote, Your daughter has her head screwed on right. The Mark I is the best out of the choices she had. Damn, I should have married her. This is Overdrive across Australia. Jeep launched the Gladiator Ute two years ago and it certainly created interest in the top end of the four-wheel drive Ute segment. We drove the Gladiator Rubicon this week which showcases the peak four-wheel drive capability with excellent approach and departure angles, front and rear diff locks, front sway bar disconnect, rock track active on-demand four-wheel drive system and a very low 4 to 1 transfer case ratio as well as up to almost 250mm of ground clearance. In the world of serious four-wheel drive vehicles, it's amongst the best. Rubicon is powered by a 3.6-litre V6 petrol engine and produces 209 kilowatts, 347 newton metres. It runs an 8-speed automatic transmission with manual mode. It can be thirsty, though, especially around town. But on our test, we average almost spot on the ADR figure of 12.5 litres per 100 k's. It is designed for serious four-wheel drive capability with a practical and large tray, but is slightly behind the market in payload and towing capacity. Inside the Rubicon with the optional luxury pack, it treats the occupants to a comfortable ride. Priced from $79,250 plus the usual costs. This is a Motory Minute. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. We noted in the news a few weeks ago and asked the question, is there still a market for three-wheeled cars? Well, Morgan thinks so by announcing an all-new Morgan Super 3. Now, they've had them in the past. They've come and gone, and uh, but now they're back. Who better to talk about three-wheel cars than our good friend, Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. Hey, David. Three-wheelers. Of course, we go back to the Reliant Robin, well, among other cars. That was one that really has great character because it was used in a television series, Only Fools and Horses. Oh, of course. Cars are often used to define the character greatly, isn't it? Particularly quirky characters. Yeah. Columbo. We had the old Peugeot convertible with a ragtop that was an absolute dishevelled car, and he was a dishevelled detective. And a couple of Land Rovers, of course, Vera and Rosemary and Time. They use old Land Rovers. It takes away the pretentiousness, I think, from people. Agree. Three-wheelers. Now, of course, you know why they built the Reliant Robin. It was to get around tax. Oh, so it's like a grown, overgrown motorcycle. It's not a car mm. because it doesn't have four wheels. Did it work? It seems a, a little like sovereign citizens, you know, who, who think they have uh, some magic words to say will get them out of trouble. Did this work, do you think, for car makers going with three wheels it's a little bit like certain politics from america it keeps comedians going Mm -hmm. for a fair while i think it's had that role because you know england 
there's been quite a few rules that have affected the cars that design. The early cars, their horsepower wasn't calculated on their actual output. It was just a measure of the diameter of the piston. <laughs> really? And so they began to make long-stroke engines. Delivered more power. You had it with motorboats. How many motorboats had a 9.9 <laughs> horsepower engine? A little bit like a 9.9, of course, means it does as well as a 12 horsepower. It's just that they're rating it at 9.9. So why, David, did they not disappear when the, I presume, the regulation or law changed that, that sort of created them? Uh, they, but they persisted. Yeah, oh, character. I think you're right with character. Do you remember that Top Gear thing they did with them? Where they just constantly just arrived on the scene and rolled over. Rolled over. Yes, they they were known for this, weren't they, just for falling over. And in fact, uh, you know, many pictures of Reliant Robins basically have them looking like they're upside down in a ditch. <laughs> they were the single wheels at the front. Yes. The Morgan is, of course, at the back. And I think there's more inherent stability in that. Yeah, I mean, it must be like driving, the, the Reliant Robin must be like driving a sort of a broken shopping trolley. <laughs> you know, the kind of castering that you would see. But the Morgans, were the three-wheelers handmade in the same way that other Morgans were? Well, this is a monocoque and it's a metal body, so it's not the old-style Morgan with a timber frame. Mm. But I believe they only still make it on the same production line and make it as 850 cars a year. Wow, okay. Last year in Australia, I think they doubled the sales. They went to six <laughs> from three. I think it was something like that. It certainly wasn't a lot. But Morgan started in 1909 with a three-wheeler, and they continued building them till 1952. Then they reintroduced them in 2011, and their CEO, Stuart Morris, says, following on from the incredible success of the outgoing Morgan three-wheeler. How many do they sell then? Well, they sell other Morgans, so if they're only making 850 a year, there can't be many three-wheelers. There's some videos. They've got some videos on there. They look like a hoot. They're people's fanging around on dirt roads, having the time of their lives. Drifting them. They only weigh about 700 kilograms. And there's an electric version which they're working on, David, which I find fascinating because you get a tremendous amount of power is the power driven through the front wheels? They're the steering wheels. It's the rear wheels. Yeah, because I remember Top Gear where they were chucking wheelies in them. So an electric version would be quite a handful, I would imagine. They've got such incredibly thin tyres. Yes. You have a look at the front of the tyres. They're a motorcycle wheel almost, aren't they? And many motorcycle wheels are, are thicker, are wider. Yeah, I was going to say, I've seen much wider motorcycle wheels. They're certainly not wide by any stretch of the imagination. But then again, if it's a light car, my Morris Minor weighed 750 kilograms. It had very thin tyres. Then again, it didn't handle. <laughs> no handling on it at all. But look at the front of it. You can see a bit of the mechanics. Now, you remember the old one had a V2, like a motorbike-type engine. Yes. And you could see that very clearly. I always thought that well, they were like the... Battle of Britain aeroplanes. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Where you can see some sort of silhouette of the engine and or, or, or some sort of mechanical parts. 
Uh, quite a good-looking sort of uh, the modern version. The, they've gone away from the purely wire wheels and they've kind of got a very large hub or spinner in the wheel. And then, you know, they've still got those sort of widely spaced headlights on the front. They're an unusual-looking car, but it's, I have to say uh, it's a good-looking design. And, and certainly in um, British Racing Green and, and uh, tan leather, very lovely. Is it old English, Brian? Is it sort of something that you go through a midsummer murders village? <laughs> yes, for sure. Down, you know, stone walls and hedges. Yeah, it's, yes. it's got that sort of feel about it, hasn't it? I, I see people wearing helmets while driving them, and I think that would be a, a wise move, wiser than a tweed cap, <laughs> I suppose, or a flat hat. But, but yes, it has an oldie English thing, and, and it's, I help, think, helped by... Sort of deliberately quirky. It's a very quirky-looking vehicle, and things sticking out of the sides and at the rear, and and roll cages. So it is. I think it's quintessentially unusual English kind of a loner, a dangerous loner living in a, a castle somewhere. David, slightly off his head, off his or her head. Talked about in the village. Yes, sort of endured by the village in a sort of quirky way, isn't it? Hmm. Now, Brian, I'm looking at the side of it. I can't see uh, any lines for a door. Yes, I think you just hop into it, don't you, like a bathtub. Yes. A door would be superfluous, and but you'd have to have a little bit of athleticism, I imagine, ah. to get in and out of it. It's, you'd have to kind of get the feet in and slide in like a kayak rather than lumbering in as a very large gentleman would. It's the British upper-class equivalent of the Dukes of Hazard in a way, really, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, don't think you could get in and out of it in a graceful way, though, could you, David? So not really suitable for the evening suit. <laughs> well, if you were young and had a big white cravat or scarf. Do you think these appeal to young people, David? I wouldn't think so. I think this is the you know, the sort of man who, who at the midlife crisis end of his life buys the sort of the small Ducati vintage racing bike this would appeal to this sort of older, quirky person. I, I don't see a young person getting in it, although they certainly have some young folk in the um, advertising images, but I, yeah, I don't see it as a, something that would appeal to the youngest. I just watched a Nissan ad that was full of bright young things smiling at each other, pictures flashing every half a second or so, and very loud music, and I felt very alienated from it, Brian. And I believe that all the young people would feel alienated as well because I don't think young people have the same passion for cars as earlier generations. So I think there's a, many a young, younger folk who don't feel they need to own a car or get a driver's license. And so car manufacturers, I think, are, are trying desperately to create that passion in young people. But many ads are, are sort of aimed at kind of mature people, particularly four-wheel drive ads or ute ads. Car makers are finding it hard to engage with young folk. I see then perhaps the Jimmy Edwards old guy, big white handlebar moustache driving in one of these perhaps. Yeah, for sure. But he might have to get his uh, butler to put a little step beside it so he can get into it <laughs> or not. But it is very much oldie-worldie in a way, isn't it? Tweed and Wellington boots, David, and... Uh... Uh, sort of drives a pony style coat. Maybe you may see some on the Southern Highlands, I guess. Um, do they, they offer any kind of advantages uh, in parking? I, I believe that well, did the earlier versions not have a reverse gear. Is that something I'm remembering incorrectly? I'll have to look that up. I'm not sure. 
would make parking particularly difficult, particularly up a hill. You'd have to get out and push it into place. Like, well, it's light. Maybe that's that's the great thing. Dean had a great line for it, uh, Brian. He said that it's one less wheel to fall off. <laughs> he's, he's never been very trusting of uh, of English uh, uh, car making craft. I think certainly they're electrical. His father had an Austin A90, I think. No, A40, sorry. A40 is enough to scar you for life, isn't it? A classic vehicle you have to tolerate, I think. Yeah. No, they're not very forgiving, many of those cars. Well, if uh, we were ever to get to test one, then I think we would have to perhaps go to, I don't know, to Bowral in New South Wales or up through the uh, Barossa Valley, perhaps, if uh, we're in Adelaide, out through the vineyards perhaps indeed you had dress for it for sure and hope it doesn't rain <laughs> all right brian lovely to talk to you thank you for your time thank you david and that was brian smith our transport expert and quirky news correspondent And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Zervis, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help in producing this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>